Let's pray. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move through these words, that they would have their source in you and not in me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our second lesson comes from John 6. The lectionary gives us five or six straight weeks in John chapter 6. So we're running out of things to do to to talk about bread. The chapter's all about bread. It starts with the feeding of the 5,000, then there's a talk about the manna in the wilderness, and then there's Jesus talking about bread, and then there's Jesus talking about bread some more. There's a lot on bread. We're almost to the end. Next week, we finish the chapter. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the father who sent me. And I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it, and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are almost to the end of John 6. Remember at the beginning, there were countless thousands of people on the shores listening to Jesus. He was the miracle worker, and they were flocking from everywhere because he was must-see TV. You had to be there to see what Jesus was doing. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was doing miracles, and the 5,000 men, plus however many children and women that were there on that hillside, were fed by a miracle of loaves and fishes, but it's the next day now, and Jesus continues to teach, and the crowd is thinning. By the end of the chapter, we're down to 11. John closes this chapter by saying that even one of his disciples has decided at this point to take off. It's not a good, not a good church growth policy. Jesus' terrible advice on how to grow your church. There's a shift in the crowd, and they're beginning to lose interest. They're tired. They're tired of following Jesus around if he isn't going to start leading them, telling them what to do, giving orders. They want him to have the spirit of the billboards just outside of Chicago that ask in red letters, are you going to heaven or hell? Have you seen those? Heaven is written across a bright blue background with white puffy clouds, and hell is written across red flames. And there's a phone number at the bottom of the billboard 
that can supply you with the answer. Who is on the other side of that call? I imagine it's a press one, if, but I don't know. I've never called. Jesus doesn't give a summons to pick up arms. Eternal life, he's offering. Living forever, he says, comes at the price of, quote, coming to Jesus. All who come to me. It is a gift for whoever believes, he says. Whoever trusts. And then at the end of this section, it's for whoever eats of his flesh, which is not a catchy line to send your crowds away with. Go tell everyone, if they eat of my flesh, they can live forever. What? When he's told that he's nothing special, just Joseph and Mary's son, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't defend even the claims that he's making. He says, he says well, no one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, which is incredibly uninspiring. He says things like that. He uses the passive voice. Jesus seems fine with the crowds leaving. As a pastor who gets really anxious when there's like three people here in the beginning of a service, it's incredibly challenging and encouraging to read about how non-anxious Jesus' own ministry was. He wasn't anxious. He wasn't worried about it. And he wasn't anxious because he trusts his father. Jesus trusts his father even if maybe things weren't going the way he might have expected them to go. He trusts God and that makes his ministry non-anxious. This passage made me think of the doctrine of election, which may be the most terrifying phrase that you could ever hear in a church. Might be the, 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 the scariest church phrase ever, doctrine of election. And I'm fine without the phrase doctrine of election. I could do without that phrase. But, but I want to defend the idea of it a little bit. And I'm going to be very brief, which means that I'm going to be quite unthorough. But election is a synonym for choice. The electives that you take in college are the courses that you want to take, the courses that you opt in for. And the idea of election is that before time began, God chose. God made decisions. God chose to save. God elected. God is free and can do whatever God wants and God chose to create and God chose to save. Double election or double predestination as you may have heard it is the idea, the scary idea, that before time began God chose to save some and God chose some for damnation. That's the ugly side, the ugly take. And you can imagine, or perhaps you've even experienced, how that idea, how the idea that some are just destined and bound for hell at God's good pleasure, how that could shape a church, or a people, or a country or policies that are terrifying, 
but are worried only about who's in and who's out. How that understanding could draw lines and create hatred and animosity. I don't think that's the right way of looking at it. It's not the right way of looking at it. I've been thinking this week about how election, about how God getting to choose, about how God choosing and being in control is good news. Election is good news for the life of the world. Leslie Newbigin writes, the cross of Jesus Christ is the place where all human beings, without exception, are exposed as enemies of God. And the place where all human beings, without exception, are accepted as the beloved of God. Objects of his forgiving grace. No one is excluded from the scope of that prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To be, this is still him, to be chosen, to be elect, therefore, does not mean that the elect are saved and the rest are lost. To be elect in Christ Jesus, and there is no other election, means to be incorporated into his mission to the world, to be bearers of God's saving purpose for the whole world, to be the sign and the agent and the first fruit of his blessed kingdom, which is for all. It means to know that you have a seat at the table and to know that your job is to invite your brother and your sister, your friend and your enemy to take their seat at the table because you know that God has chosen for them to have a seat there. My grandma is turning 95 next weekend. We'll have a party and we'll celebrate her life. She's still in remarkably good health for 95, but she's tired and she's ready to die. She says it every now and then. And that's both scary and wonderful to me. I can't imagine feeling that way right now, which is good. But I can also appreciate that, as Miroslav Volf puts it, biological life isn't the greatest good and biological death isn't the greatest evil. And my grandma understands that better than I do. It's funny what becomes heaven to people on earth. I was in Lake Michigan at sunset last night. That's pretty close. For her at 95, it is the brewers on TV leading, if possible, and a piece of wheat toast bought at Piggly Wiggly with off-brand preserves and a cup of tea, probably on the fourth steep. She drinks out of a porcelain measuring cup that has a handle because a real mug is too pretentious. I wish I could get her something incredible for her 95th birthday. I wish I could fly her first class to Hawaii for a vacation or buy her the best meal she's ever had or at least a nice name brand sweater for full price. But she would despise all of those. She does her shopping at the Dollar Tree and when I take her to Culver's on my visits, she gets a decaf coffee and a cup of soup and I've never seen her splurge for the bowl. Always the cup. I've asked her what she thinks heaven will be like 
She doesn't know, which fits her M.O. The preacher on the Sunday evening television program that she watches almost as religiously as the Brewers described heaven once, she said, but honestly, streets of gold don't suit her. Way too gaudy. My grandma never really believed she was anything special, which is a trait that we sometimes miscall humility. It is shared, I think, by a lot of elderly women in the Midwest, maybe around the world. She doesn't think she's worth a hill of beans. She knows the Bible backwards and forwards, and she has loved God her entire life. She has walked with Jesus side by side, and she's treated people well. She's loved others far more than she's loved herself. On the eve of her 95th birthday, I've been thinking about what heaven will be like for her. And it's all speculation on my part, except that I feel almost as confident as I've ever felt about anything. About what she's going to hear when she gets to heaven. And I'm trying to decide whether I should tell her next weekend or write a letter or something. But here's what I want to say. Grandma... I don't have all the answers, and I don't think those preachers on CBN have as many as they think they do either. But I'm pretty sure that when you get to heaven, you'll see a light so gentle it has to be Christ, and so strong and comforting that it must be the Father rising over the east sweet cornfields, and I think you'll recognize the light because you've spent your entire life with it. And I think you're going to hear a voice. And I think that voice is going to say, Henrietta, well done, my beloved daughter. You are beautiful. I handcrafted you with great care, your body and your mind and your emotions. I created all of them. And when I created you, I said, it is good. You have been and are such a delight to me. And in heaven, Grandma, nothing will have changed except that you'll really believe it. For the first time, you'll really believe it. You will believe without reservation what God says about you. The unfathomable unfathomable now will be made clear that you are beautiful and that you have wit and humor and worth. That you were chosen. In heaven, the facts will not have changed for my grandma. But for the first time in her life, I think she'll believe them. She will see herself as God sees her, not dimly but in full. And in seeing herself clearly, she will understand God more clearly. And this is why I love the doctrine of election. Because what it says is that before the creation of the world, before the nations were formed and boundaries put in place, before that you were told that you weren't good enough, before you had made mistakes and said things you wish you hadn't said, done things you wish you hadn't done, before you knew anything of it, child, Christ had chosen you, had lived for you, had died for you, had rose again for you, And one day you will see it clearly.
like someone with blurry vision, putting on glasses for the very first time, realizing that the leaves dance and bounce and have shadows, one day we will see it in full, and we will know how deep and how high and how wide the love of God is, and it will change how we view ourselves and how we view the least among us, and it will change how we participate in the life of the world. And at this table, maybe we get a glimpse of it. We see what it means to be chosen, what it means for the life of the world to be chosen. God chose to dwell among us. God chose to create you. God chose to save you. And the bread of life, Christ, came for the life of the world. And Jesus invites those who are listening, and he invites us today to trust that promise. To trust that promise. This week, let us ask the Holy Spirit to help us see ourselves as God's beloved and live as the church for the life of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.